how many Detroit Lions fans are there here? Wow. Well, I sure hope you guys lose today. I, uh, as you know, they're playing the Chargers today. And uh, guess what time Jeremiah scheduled my flight for? 4 p.m. So thanks a lot, brother. Thanks a lot. I, actually, I have a two and a half hour layover uh, in Chicago, so I'm hoping that the outcome will be sort of determined, either whether we're getting killed or we win before I leave for San Diego. Um, but it really is good to be here. Jeremiah is a dear friend. You guys are blessed to have him. I, um, I could tell during the worship, I, I, I need to kind of give a confession. <laughs> he forgot his coffee cup. I'm going to take this. <laughs> I, uh, now I'm just joking. I already got one. But two is one, one is none, they say in the SEAL team. So I'm going to maybe I'll try to get out with a second one for my wife. Um, okay, so I'm tired right now. I, uh, I, I realize you guys are on the East Coast time. And I'm three hours ahead, and so it's some terrible hour for me right now. I've already shared once, and uh, um, uh, uh, my thought will get to me eventually here. I, uh, I, uh, maybe it won't. Uh, oh, yeah, I know what I was going to say. A few years ago, dear, so during the worship, I, I, I realized I was getting a little emotional. Uh, when I'm tired, I've noticed that I either get very weepy or I get very funny. And sometimes it's a combination of both. And, and uh, when I weep during worship now, about four years ago, I found myself in Mongolia visiting uh, dear friends of ours that our church supports uh, that are with New Tribe, Jeremiah's old uh, missions organization. And I found myself in this warehouse with all of the, uh, the missionaries that were with New Tribe's missions uh, sort of celebrating the departure of one missionary who had uh, served his 20 years. He'd, he'd come, he'd completed his task. And there, for all of Mongolia and all of new tribes, um, when I say that all of their missionaries from all of Mongolia were there, you would think it would be a huge, play, a huge room filled with people, but it wasn't. It was about five families. And I found myself with some of the most uh, amazing saints that I'd ever had the opportunity to be with. And they had a time of worship, and they, um, they'd asked me if there was a song that I'd like to, to sing. And so I requested an old hymn, Jesus Paid It All. And as we were sort of fumbling through the song, because we didn't have all the words, but we had some of them, I found myself just bawling like a baby. And so I, of course, did what any self-respecting man would do. I, I bowed my head to make myself look more spiritual, like I was deep in contemplation and, and uh I was really trying to hide the tears because I was sort of embarrassed. Like how, do, like, how do you deal with that? And in that moment, I felt like the Lord, I didn't hear a voice, but I just sort of felt like God told me that he'd exchanged my anger for tears. And so I find that I, I weep a lot. I'm horrible at funerals. I do a lot of them. But I'll be the guy up front that's like crying like a baby, and I've got to give the sermon. I cry at weddings as I'm giving the officiating the ceremony. And so... Today's message is one that's very difficult for me. In, in fact, I was not planning on, on sharing this message with you all uh, two hours ago. Um, as I got here and started walking around, I, I, I kind of felt like the Lord wanted me to share sort of part two of my testimony. Uh, for, for those of you who missed the first part, um, I, you can go to my website. I have sealpastor.com. It's not because I like to advertise the seal thing. It's that my name, Gunnar Hansen, actually is shared with somebody um, 
that took the rights to my name. And a little bit of trivia, the, the lead actor for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, his name is Gunnar Hansen. And so it makes it difficult going places because I'm often asked, am I that guy? And I assure them that I am not the Texas Chainsaw Massacre guy, which is probably why there's some room up front here. Uh, if you, if you, uh, I don't know if you take my, see my mind, I open files as I'm speaking. And right now I'm like, oh, it'd be really funny to take one of these guitars and start making chainsaw sounds. But uh, uh, I, I'll resist my thought. And, uh, but my website there, you can find, uh, my, my story was done by the Unshackled program. Uh, it was a blessing a few years ago. They, they did a lot of my story. Um, it's, uh, it's there if you'd like to hear it. Um, but I'm going to pray because I think I need help right now. And I'm going to share this message that's really difficult for me. It's, uh, so I apologize if I get weepy. Uh, it's been a number of years, but this really is how God continued to work in my life. I, um, I don't have a clean uh, Christian story. I uh, am still a work in progress. I'm a slow learner. And I believe that God made me a pastor so that I would learn how to be a Christian. Uh, but that's for another day. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I, I pray that as we look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, that your word would speak for itself. I pray, Lord, that my stories would not be a distraction to your story because my stories are nothing. It's your story that is magnificent. And, Lord, we, um, we look to you for help. Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that you would help my thoughts to be clear. I pray that you would help me to share how you worked in my life, um, Lord, through some things. And I ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. So I graduated SEAL training back in 1995 and uh, graduated with Bud's Class 198. We started with 180-something men or children <laughs> as I look back on my life back then and uh, 14 of us made it. Uh, I was a guy that I don't know how I made it through the program. I, I really don't. I, I was almost kicked out a number of times and in hindsight I realized that very early on I was paired with, with a a swim buddy. Everybody's con connected through SEAL training. You're paired with somebody. And so I ended up being paired with my good friend, Tommy Retzer. And Tommy and I, w the reason we were paired together is because we both were decent swimmers. And, and, and our swim times uh, put us at the same sort of finishing point. And so we did everything together. Not only did we swim at the same speed, but we were about the same height. So we found ourselves in the same boat crew. Uh, the boat crews are sort of made up of guys that are the same height so that the boat will rest uh, evenly across all six or seven people's heads. And so Tommy and I, uh, from day one, we were together to the, to the very end. We both went to SEAL Team 3. Uh, and, and so we were sort of a, a, a mixed bag. We, I was young. I was 18. He was a mature 20. And... Uh, Either I was on the verge of getting us kicked out or he was on the verge of getting us kicked out. I, uh, I, I remember once, because the one question I get all the time is, did you ever want to quit? And that is, of course. It's miserable. Like, uh, the one time I wanted to quit, it was, the, uh, it was the Wednesday before Hell Week. Hell Week starts 
uh, Sunday afternoon, it goes to Thursday. I was a Winter Hell Week class. Our Winter Hell Week uh, started November 27th, and we concluded our Hell Week uh, on December 2nd of 1994. Still to this day, it uh, holds the, the lowest temperatures in San Diego County. It was miserably, horribly cold. Uh, and we had, it was Thanksgiving weekend before Hell Week started. And I started to come down with some sort of fever or flu that, that previous week. And we woke up to find out on Wednesday that they had decided that they were going to do a, a, a swim test on us. And so we had to swim 3.5 nautical miles. A nautical mile is farther than a statute mile, which you use on land. And so I was like, this isn't good. I, I, I mean, who likes the flu? And then to be told that you have to swim three and a half miles, more like closer to four miles, um, in order to, to finish your day. And so we got in the water. And as I was swimming down, I, I, it, was, it was cold. The flu, my internal thermostat was all out of whack. I, I began to, to question whether I could survive the training or whether I even wanted to be there. And so I began over the course of this mile, what is it? So 1.75 miles on the way down. I started to have this conversation in my head that when I got to the halfway point, I was going to quit. I was going to DOR, which means to drop on request. And so I, I reasoned with myself that my dad would still love me if I quit. I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, but it was this big tug of war in my ha head. Would my, would my dad be okay with me if I quit? And I talked myself in that it would be okay to throw in the white towel and to, to, to surrender. And so I swam with the intent of, of, of meet, meeting the boats at the halfway mark with, with saying, hey, sorry, Tom, I'm out of here. Um, and I was going to get into the boat, and I was going to go have some hot coffee, and I was going to call it a day. And so I got to the boat, and by the time I got to the boat, I realized that I didn't want to quit on Tom. Because if I quit on Tom, then Tom would be paired with a slower, a slower swimmer. I, I was prepared for the harassment that would come to me, but I didn't want to, to do anything that would harm him. And so I decided that, well, I'll, sw I'll just swim back and I'll quit when I finish. And so I continued swimming all the way back. And then when I finished, I decided, well, why am I going to quit now? It's basically Friday. It was Wednesday, but we had Thursday, Friday off for for uh, Thanksgiving and Hell Week would start on Sunday. And so I didn't quit there, but I credit Tom with, with um, sparing me in the program. Uh, first phase is really, uh, oh, how to say this in pastor terms. It's a, it's a kick somewhere that is very difficult to survive. Uh, many people go away and it's I shared previously that I, I remembered with my abusive mom going through Hell Week kind of thinking, at least she passed out. These guys, they don't quit. And then they, they tag team out and new instructors come in. It's just a never-ending misery. And then in second phase, after you get through first phase, second phase is you learn to scuba dive. I'm wrestling with do I save these guys' music or not, but I think it's too late. So that's my, I opened up a new file in my brain. Yeah. 
And so second phase is dive phase. Dive phase can be brutal. It is, uh, you learn to scuba dive, which is uh, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Uh, the first part of training is what's called open circuit diving, which means that you inhale into your scuba gear and then when you exhale, bubbles go to the surface. Uh, really, that's the basics. And then we move on to closed circuit diving, which is where you inhale and then when you exhale, it goes, it's a self-contained unit so that there are no bubbles. It is a huge deal to get to the, the, the rebreather in training. By that point, most of the guys have washed out. You're pretty, you're pretty confident by that phase or that point in training that you're going to make it through, through training. And so we were on our very first open water dive on rebreathers, Tommy and I. And so we're diving. I was the driver. The driver is uh, basically... Uh, you're swimming underwater. We were supposed to go out and then turn around and come back. I forget how far we were supposed to go out. I have an attack board, which is simply a, comp a, a little, a little, uh, like a, a little tray that has a compass, a clock, your depth gauge, and, and it's your responsibility to sort of take you wherever you're to go. Now, the the swim buddy in this situation, he's supposed to swim just sort of over your head and behind you, just sort of being aware of things that you might run into in the pitch black. Uh, in training, what you're to do is you're connected by like a three-foot rope, and then there's a, a rope that goes to the surface with a buoy, so the instructors can sort of keep boats over the off the top of your heads. They can kind of take notes to see how you're doing underwater, and you don't have bubbles, so they need to be able to figure out where you are. And so we were on this dive. It was my first open water dive on a rebreather, and as we got near the end, I thought I heard some like explosions underwater, but I I don't have a, I didn't have a lot of experience being underwater as explosions were going off, and so I kind of looked at Tom. We're looking at each other and communicating underwater is very, very difficult to do, and one of the side effects of being on a rebreather is you're diving pure oxygen, which is is totally toxic. So one of the first side effect is that you get very short fused, so a lot of fights will break out underwater amongst friends because they're so angry. And so we're trying to figure out, like, is this explosions? What's going on? We're like, ah, just keep going. So we kept going. And then we, we sort of surfaced, just like, well, maybe these explosions, we should look around and see what's going on. So we look around. I thought I looked right at an instructor. He didn't seem to be panicking. And so I went back underwater, and we continued our dive. And so then as we got to the very shallow parts of the water, uh, we didn't know when it was okay to stand up, and so you would go till you basically beached yourself underwater. And so I'm getting to that point, and I look out of the corner of my eye, and I can see Tommy right over my shoulder. But I also see a, a big sort of like Boston Whaler-type boat with a bunch of instructors in it. And I'm like, huh, I wonder what they're doing. And then I see him take an oar, and he just stabbed it down into the back of Tommy's head. And I just remember thinking, ooh, that looked painful. Wow, what did Tom do? And so we stood up. We see all of our class up on the bank. And we were met by a barrage of screaming instructors. And I'm trying, what, what, what's happening here? And they're asking, where's our buoy? And of course, I look at Tom. And I say, Tom, you're, where's our buoy? He's like, I don't know. It was clipped on. Where, 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 where is that thing? And the instructor's holding it. All those explosions we were hearing, they were trying to recall us to find out where we were. And so I'll leave out a lot of that story, but we, um, we almost got kicked out there. And we, I, got, uh, I was blessed with doing a little bit more exercise, so I was in better shape. 
by the end of that. Uh, then we moved on to third phase. Third phase is land warfare. You, you get to wear camis, and you're, you're, by this time, you, you know the instructors are viewing you more like brothers in arms. You're, they're now grooming you to become SEALs. Uh, you're no longer viewed sort of just as students, and they, sort of, they begin to transition. Well, during this time, Tommy and I, we, we had discovered that in the rooms in the barracks, uh, there were sort of two rooms connected through a bathroom. And so we had one room, and for whatever reason, they said we had to move to the other room. And the rooms didn't have keys. They had sort of like cipher code locks to get in and out. And so we moved to our new room. We got it all ready. But then we realized nobody moved into the spare room. And we're like, what a great, hey, Tom, I got a great idea, man. How about we live in that room? We get this room inspection ready. We'll get it nice. We'll, we'll never use it. And so we set up our inspection room. We were golden. We had our other room that we lived out of. And in this room, I mean, it was a mess. It was trash. Nobody was assigned to this room. Nobody, there's no way they would figure this out. And so I, I was too cheap to buy two lockers. So my inspection room, of course, I had a locker. But where I kept all my muddy gear and dirty gear, I, I kept in the, our, our real room without a lock. Tom was wise enough to get two locks. And uh, so the time went on. We thought we were living the high life. This was just awesome. And, and so one day, I don't remember where Tom was. I, I think it's this post-traumatic stress. But all I know is Tom was like at the dentist or the doctor's office or somewhere, and he wasn't with me. We'd finished a run early in the morning, and the instructor said, hey, we have a surprise room inspection. Your rooms better be ready. No problem. I'm always ready. I don't care that Tom's not here, so I'm standing by my room. It's immaculate because we never went in there. It was just perfect. I'm standing at the door ready, like, oh, these guys think they got us. I'm so much smarter than the instructors. Tom's gone, no problem. I got this by myself. Then all of a sudden, I hear screaming from our other room. And this wasn't good. And so there's a saying, deny everything, make counter accusations. And so they finally, somebody comes to get me, and I kind of like, "Eh, what's going on over here, guys? And to the instructors, so I'm like, oh, what's, what's going on, boys? And they're like, whose room is this? I have no idea. We live over there. They're like, you're sure you live over there? Yeah, all our stuff. Look, go inspect that room. I don't know whose all stuff this is. And then I see the instructor going to the locker, my locker, with all my stuff, and I'm killing myself because... How hard would it have been to buy a $3 lock to put on that locker that they couldn't access, but they were going right in there, and I knew that the gig was up, but I'd already started lying, and there's no turning back once you've started a lie to the instructors. And they open it, and they say, you're telling me this is not your room. I'm like, I have no clue. (laughs) Now, Tom wasn't there to defend himself, so it's time for me to throw him under the bus. Maybe it's Retzer's. I don't know anything about it. Where is he? Maybe he's hiding. <laughs> Such a good friend. So they open the locker, and I see the cami pants where we've been out Laguna Mountains. They're all muddy. And they, 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 they read the name tape on the back, and it says Hanson. And they say, How does, this is your room. How does it say Hanson on it? 
it's a really common name, and it's what a coincidence. And I just remember them throwing the pants, and I must have had sunflower seeds because there was, there was memories of sunflower seeds flying. And we got in trouble. Again, I don't remember. I knew that we were going to fly out to San Clemente Island, and in order to go, they said I had to do a thousand eight-count bodybuilders, which I got in really good shape during this time. But our class had decided that it was, a, it was, it was time was over for the Hanson Retzer show, and they thought it was in our best interest to break us up and to put us into different swim pairs, different squads, to separate us totally because we were so prone. Uh, to getting in trouble. We were fine when we were working. It was our off time that was getting us into trouble. And so then we moved on with our life. We each got orders to SEAL Team 3 out of Coronado. Uh, we checked into SEAL Team 3. SEAL Team 3 had no idea about our previous history. And so they threw us into the same platoon together. We got, well, hazing doesn't happen in the Navy officially. So I'm going to, we, uh, we were remediated. We got extra conditioning for a lot of stupid things that we did. Uh, I blame Tom for most of those, since he's not here to defend himself. Um, one of the nights, we found ourselves out at a, at a range. And, and, and one of the things that they do in the SEAL teams, it's something called a happy hat. And if you can believe it, there's nothing really happy about a happy hat. Uh, a happy hat is when they take rigorous tape, which is like duct tape on steroids. And they take about... There, I don't even know what it's called, but there's something that girls do when they go to the hair salon where they put those little like strips in their hair to, all around. Do you know what I'm talking about? What's that called? Is it, uh, what? Foil? Yeah, maybe like foil. Like, yeah, like where they like do stuff. That's, I don't do that a lot. And, uh, and so they put this stuff all into your hair, like, like little just taping all over. Then they wrap your hair up like a mummy, and then they, they put a handle there so they can drag you around. And it's a horrible, I mean, not hazing, it's a horrible uh, instruction, course of instruction on how to survive torture, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and, and so this would happen to us a lot. And so one day we're at the gun range, and I knew we were going to get hazed. We were the new guys. We always, this always happened to us. And I look up at Tom at the gun table. We're cleaning our guns, and his hair is, like, super shiny. And I'm like, Tom, what's up with your hair, bro? And he's like, it's gun oil, man. No happy hats coming my way tonight. There's no way. <laughs> and I don't know what happened to him because I had a nickname in my first platoon. I was Gunner the Runner. So whenever hazing happened, I was for the hills. Whatever I had to do, I was gone until they could. That's when I learned out about uh, heat vision. They uh, have a way to find you. And I, that's another story. But Tom, they messed up and it was bad. And it, it, we just had a lot of fun. Uh, Tom and I grew up in the SEAL teams, and uh, we found ourselves sort of going separate ways after a couple platoons. I shared during the first service about my, my little incident. Resisting and evading arrest if you weren't here. So it was a little incident that was sort of a big incident, and it got me thrown out of our platoon to deal with that. And, and, and eventually, um, I, after a few months, I was able to get my clearance back. Um, I, I was able to go on and serve honorably for the rest of my time. And during that phase, I sort of became a Christian. And well, I didn't sort of, I became a Christian. And, and it was about five years after my conversion that Tom and I, we bumped into each other. We hadn't seen each other in years. And we were in the weight room. He was working out. I was getting a glass of water. And uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't like the weight rooms that much. And so 
So we kind of bumped in. It's like, hey, Tom. He's like, hey, Gunnar. It's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I got, and I told him, I'm like, well, I have deployment. I'm leaving for deployment. And I'll get back on June of 2001. And, uh, and he's like, I'm like, what are you doing, man? Are you going into another platoon? I'm like, I think I'm going to go to Bud's when I get back and go be a first phase instructor. And he's like, no, I think I'm going out to dev group. And I'm going to screen for what's called green team. That's SEAL Team 6. And so he went out to dev group. I went my separate way. And life sort of went on. I got on, on deployment, uh, came back from deployment in June of 2001. 9-11 happened, which was sort of, uh, you guys heard about that, right? Yeah, that's, and that's another thing Jeremiah did to me. He bought me a plane ticket on 9-11, and he's flying me home on September 13th. It's a, it's a, it's a good thing that I'm uh, not superstitious. Or, but it was sort of a surreal experience flying on Friday, uh, this, this event that so um, changed my life in many ways. And so I went on to BUDS. I started working. I learned that BUDS is a whole lot more fun as an instructor. It's awesome. I mean, when you're not the poor saps going through the training as an instructor, the creativity and the genius of things that we can do to them just for entertainment's sake, it is so much fun. And I found myself on June 26 of 2003 working at Hell Week, and I was working the graveyard shift. And I'd come home from Hell Week, I'd gone to bed, and the phone had, I remember hearing the phone ringing, and my wife took the call, and my buddy Jake had, had called, and my wife Anna said, you know, Gunner doesn't take calls during Hell Week. He's asleep, and I've learned to don't wake him up if he's working graveyard Hell Week shift. And Jake said, no, Anna, I need you to wake up Gunner. And so Jake is a buddy of ours that we graduated with 198, and so Jake told me, uh, when I got on the phone, he said, Gunner, stand up. And I'm like, shut up, Jake. What do you want? I'm sleeping. He's like, Gunner, get up. He's like, I need you to slap yourself across the face. I'm like, shut up, dude. I'm not going to do that. What do you want? I'm gonna, he could tell that I was getting angry at him. And he's like, okay, I can see you're awake now, and I need to tell you something. He's like, Tom was killed last night in Afghanistan. He was uh, shot in the head, and uh, it was a direct action sort of thing, and, and uh, I can't go into the details. Um, but it was a hard, it was a difficult time for me. I, uh, I was a Christian at this point. Getting this news was terribly, terribly painful. And uh, I realized that when I got that news, that the last time I'd seen Tom was in the weight room of SEAL Team 3. And what I didn't share with you about that time in, at, at, at the weight room as I'd become a Christian at that point, kind of going back, that this was all during a time when God was really working on me, and I was resisting, and, and, and I remember being in the weight room, being convicted like I'd never been convicted before. Um, and God, I, I truly believe that God was telling me to share with Tom how I'd become a Christian and to witness to him, but that wasn't something I was willing to do. I, um, I remember talking to Tom, being in this total argument with God in my head, and God saying, you need to tell him about Christ. Tell him how you become a Christian. And my response to God is, or was, Lord, you know all the things I've done. And Tom was there with me, and he was causing trouble in the midst of this. There's no way I'm going to share with Tom that I became a Christian for fear of the repercussions of what... Um, what, what might happen to me or what he would think about me or I just wasn't ready for the humiliation of it all. And so 
my world was ro- was rocked. I knew that I was a Christian at this point. There was no there was no there was no doubt. I was I was married to my wife. We we didn't have kids at this point. Um, we lost our first child and do it to a miscarriage, which was right in this window. And I just felt like there was wave after wave after wave of things that I couldn't happen. Uh, the first man killed in the war uh, was a dear friend of mine from high school. He was in a helicopter crash and he was killed, Tom Adams. Uh, from 2003 to 2000, well, till present day, I've stopped counting how many funerals I've been to, how many good friends I've been to, uh, how many good friends, how many funerals I've been to, I think I said. Um, but during this season of 2003, it was like my whole world had imploded, and I found myself just at my wit's end, not knowing how to go forward, not knowing even how much more I could take. Um, I'd already started... I felt God at this point that he was calling me to the ministry. But now there was some anger and some, like, was I really on the right path of getting out? Um, I didn't know how to handle death. And if we're honest, we still don't. And I've come to the conclusion that um, in Ecclesiastes, I believe it's 311, or it could be chapter 7 in my notes when I get there, but it's all paper clipped down right now. Um, or it was. I hope that wasn't mine. Yeah, it wasn't. It's better. <laughs> I'm still good. Uh, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And so even as Christians, when we face death, it doesn't sit right with us. There's something about death that just isn't right. And the reason is because we have eternity in our hearts and we were never created or designed to experience death. And even though sin entered the world and that death came as a result of sin, we still have a hard time dealing with death. And so there I was as a Christian, wrestling wrestling with my Christianity. Am I a Christian? Am I... What's going on? And I found myself at a day, like a men's retreat, and I I kind of whisked away. I'm more of an introvert and... and, uh, I kind of wanted to get away from the rush of people, so I kind of went up into the mountains and, and found a spot under a pine tree. And I just had my Bible, and, and I probably was work. I, I knew I had a Bible study coming up if the memories clear in my head. I think we were working through 1 Corinthians. And I didn't really know what was coming in 1 Corinthians, and I thought, well, I'm just going to sit here, and I'm going to read out 1 Corinthians. And I came to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, And it was like God was speaking to me. It was like the, the pages of the text were, it was like his voice, his breath. And it, it, I, I can't explain what happened. This is a, I, I feel bad. You know, I had a whole other message planned and I, I, I come back to this one so often when I come to events like this because it really is, I can't rewrite my history and it's kind of part of my story. And, um, But God ministered to me in a special way. And it ended up being, I remember going there and then walking to the pastor. Like, I'm just a Navy SEAL. Not really. I was going to Bible college, but it wasn't like I was in the, I'm on the pastor track. I was more like, I'm just trying to figure out the Bible thing. And and I went to the pastor and I said, hey, this might seem crazy, but I, I think I'm supposed to preach a message. And he's like, how's two weeks from now sound? 
It's like, okay, you know. And so I shared what God had done there with this passage. It's been be, become very meaningful to me. And 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse, I don't even need more paper. I got it. Here's another closed line. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, really begins in verse 16 of chapter 4. And so there I was, really just a hurting young man. Uh, I was a believer. I had a wonderful wife who was wonderful. Um, she was going through her own pain during that time. It was a really, you know, marriage is a beautiful thing, and I think God's designed it so that when one spouse is down, the other there is to, to try to, to, to help them along. But we found ourselves at a place in our lives where I was knocked down, and she was knocked down having just lost the baby. And uh, it was just a dark, sort of hard season for us. And so there I was, and I st I'm reading along, and I read, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And I remember reading that, and he says, therefore I do not lose heart. And all I remember thinking to God, I was like, God, I've lost heart. I don't know how much more I can take. At the time of Tom's death, I didn't understand, I didn't see then how many dear friends I would lose during the war, how many dear friends that have become, you know, people send, you know, you know how the, you have the friends that send the forward all the emails? Uh, my friends have become forwarded emails. So I'll be there and somebody will forward an email with a casket with a bunch of tridents on it about some message. I'm like, that's Mikey Monsoor, who's a, a student of mine. I, I, I hear political commentary, which I will bite my tongue but there's political commentary about Benghazi. Well, Ty and Glenn were dear brothers. We were all at SEAL Team 3 together. Chris Kyle served with me at SEAL Team 3. Um, there, there's a number of names. Uh, Marcus Luttrell. These are all students, friends, brothers of mine who are now being killed, who are um, being talked about amongst the general population. And I didn't know how much would be coming my way. I... Um, I sat there having lost Tom, and I said, losing heart. I'd learned enough in Bible college at this point to know, has Jeremiah taught you about therefores yet? When you see a therefore, what do you say? Yeah, what's the therefore, therefore? And so in this case, you back up a couple verses. And in verse 14, it says, knowing that he who raised the Lord will raise also with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading more and more, people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart. And so he kind of points to the resurrection. It, it, it spoke to me. Then I come into verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He, he points forward to this hope that we have in God. For indeed, in this house, he's speaking of our body, we groan, longing to be clothed in, with our dwelling from heaven. 
Inasmuch as we have put it on, we will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. I want to say a few things here. Um, One of the things I like about Michigan, you guys are kind of like an outdoorsy people. Like I thought, see, I, I liked fishing as a kid. And so when Jeremiah said, hey, you're coming to Michigan, you're going to fly in Friday night, you have Saturday, and you have two choices. You can go hunting or you can go fishing. But you got to do something like you're in Michigan. And so we went fishing. And so I kind of thought that, um, we, you know, that we'd get a good book and we would uh, sit on the banks with a, a fishing pole and uh, throw it in the water read our book and catch up and then we would go home well then he shows up with this guy who he never met you know fishing411.net professional fisherman with like all the bells and whistles and we caught fish like it was like a lot of fish it was amazing and then we're driving around and it's like look at all these campers and like like this is wonderful i love camping but my wife, not so much. I, I remember uh, when we first got married, I had a quest. I've given up the quest. I've lost the quest. That I was going to train my wife <laughs> to love camping. And so we were going to go to Sequoia in California with her family. And I had seminary class. And, and so I had one last thing, and we were going to leave in the evening. So we drove all through the night. We arrived at 3 in the morning. I bought a tent. I bought an air mattress. I bought everything that would make this whole thing be wonderful for her, that she couldn't get enough of camping. And so we show up at the campsite, and I build the tent. She's in the car. And, and um, I get the tent up. I get out the air mattress. And there were so many people at this national campsite. It was, it was overwhelming with the amount of people. And I bought one of those little, you know, plug it into the cigarette lighters to, to, to blow up the mattress. And as soon as I turned it on, I, it was like an F-18 was flying through at 3 in the morning. So I'm like, oh, I can't do this. And so I sat down and I began to, uh, to blow into this queen-sized air mattress for a while, feeling very lightheaded at altitude. And I realized that with, after a few 15, 20 minutes, um, that with every breath, it would go up and then it would sort of go back down. And so I started inspecting the mattress. And I see that there was like a, a silver dollar sort of threaded spot and, and there was no cap on it. And I thought, why would they sell this thing with a, a, no cap? And then my mind, see, I didn't, camping for me was I just, really just kind of slept on the ground and shivered until the sun came up. And, and I'm starting to have memories of when I pulled this thing out of the box that there was like a bag of stuff. And I just threw it away without like, like well, who needs directions for an air mattress, right? And so then I'm going back. I'm like, well, maybe just maybe I put it in the car. And so I'm going back to the car and my wife is just tired. She's like, is it ready yet? Is it ready yet? And I'm like, oh, just a few more minutes. And I'm looking around the car. I can't find it. And I'm, there's got to be matches around here. So I found matches. She's like, what's going on? Are you starting a fire? I don't need a fire. I just need a match. I'm like, don't, don't worry about it. Just rest. Just rest, honey. And so I sat there, and I melted the two things and squeezed it together to try to get an air seal, which I kind of failed at. 
And then I kind of broke the news to my wife, and I said, well, just let's, it's, uh, really, I spent a lot of time sleeping on the ground. It's really not that bad. And uh, I think I married that girl from, there's a, the kid's story about the pee in the mattress. I think I married her, and, and uh, but she had like a boulder under her back. And, and so all night long, she was just moaning. Like, Kent, her parents had to motor home. But we'd only been married like six months, and I refused to take her, my wife to her parents' motorhome as a failure. And so I said, honey, just deal with it. it. It'll be okay. And so she moaned and moaned and moaned. And by the end, I was moaning because it was really miserable. And so I read this verse, verse 4, for while we are in this tent, we groan. <laughs> I think of that camping trip. But what Paul's talking about, he's not talking about a tent, he's talking about our bodies. And, and I encourage young people to hang out with older people because older people, like my dad's now 81, he's in a retirement home, and it's so fun hanging out with the people in the retirement home. And uh, they groan, they talk about pills, they talk about prostates, they talk about things being removed, things not working, things hurting, things failing on them, all sorts of things. And as we age, our minds stay young. And so we, guys like me, we tend to do stupid things thinking that we're still 20, but we're not. And our bodies begin to ache, and Paul is writing. Then this body we groan, we recognize that, that the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is moving from order to disorder, that we're moving towards death, that our bodies ache. We groan, we long for this tent from heaven. At the end of verse 4, that day under that tree, out in the mountains, something stood out to me. I, I don't know how you guys feel about death, but when I have seen death in my whole life, I've always viewed it sort of like a candle that's burning. And when you want the candle to go out, you snuff it, and it's the end of it. That's kind of how I felt about death, that you kind of lived your life, and then when you died, it was sort of over, the end, finished. But then I come to this verse, and Paul doesn't describe death that way for the believer. Paul, Paul uses this phrase, swallowed up by life, which is totally counterintuitive to the way we view death. Because remember, we're not equipped, Ecclesiastes 3.11, we have eternity in our hearts, so when we see death from a human perspective, it just doesn't seem right. But Paul here writes, as they were facing all sorts of problems, he says, what is mortal, our bodies, our lives, will be swallowed up by life. That death is really God's form of grace to free us from this body that's so wrecked by sin. He goes on to say in verse 5, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Um, let me figure out where I am in my notes here. The Spirit of God, I wish we had three hands, but if I had three hands, I would probably use a third hand and be wishing for a fourth hand because that's how it works, right? Sorry, you guys got my internal commentary. Trying to turn pages here.
sorry about that, and sorry to the musician whose paper clips are all off here, or laundry stuff. Um, so this whole concept of the Spirit as a pledge, if you were to go back to Ephesians 1.13, Paul writes there sort of this great theological introduction to the, to the churches in the, in the region of Ephesus. He says to them that after hearing the gospel, you believed. And so I try not to speak in Christianese because I was a... I just don't have a Christian world. I didn't have a Christian world view when I first came to Christ. And, and Christians tend to speak in lingo that I, I just didn't follow. And so the gospel is one of these things that we talk about so often. And yet, uh, I, I wonder, going back 15 years, if somebody quizzed me then and said, Hey, Gunnar, what's the gospel? I said, oh, I, or they, if, I would have said, oh, I know what the gospel is, and I would have fumbled through something. But the gospel is really simple. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about uh, proclaiming the gospel, and he, he says that the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. He goes on to list a number of people whom the risen Christ had appeared to. See, Paul was a skeptic. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul was not a man that would be easily converted to Christianity. And he says he appeared to these. He appeared to 500 men that at the time of his writing, he says most of them are still alive. And if you want to talk to them to get their testimony that Jesus rose from the dead, they will do it. In fact, most of the people that he listed all gave their lives not recanting from the truth that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. And then Paul ends that little section, and he says, of all the apostles, I am the least of them, not worthy to be called an apostle, for I was a persecutor of the church that Paul was there responsible for the killing of the first Christian. Okay, that might have... I'm still good. They, uh, I hear there's a saint. Does this count as the Midwest? Does it? I mean, that's, that's a, are we in the Midwest? We are. Okay, thank you. I heard that if you don't like the weather in the Midwest, all you have to do is wait 10 minutes. So I'm just going to wait here for 10 minutes, and then we'll pick up. <laughs> Whoa, I'm still good. But we're talking about the gospel, and I'm going to try to keep your attention here because this is important. Paul then goes on after saying about he being the least of all the apostles, he begins to talk about the resurrection of Christ. And he says if Christ didn't raise from the dead, he doesn't say like I've heard some pastors say. I remember early in my Christian life, and it sounded really good to me, they said, well, if we live our life, and it turns out that Christ didn't rise from the dead, but we lived our lives good and our, everything went really great, then, hey, that's great anyways. So we live good lives, we die, and it's not really true. It's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, we of all men should be pitied. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, you all are wasting your... Well, I make a hard case right now because there's barbecue back there, so... There is some benefit. Typically on a Sunday, you'd be wasting your time. You should be fishing or hunting or doing whatever you do. 
There's no point if Christ didn't raise from the dead. But Paul says he did raise from the dead. Back to Ephesians 1, he said, But after hearing the gospel of your salvation, you received the Spirit. And so whenever it was that I came to Christ, I really have no clue. It could have been as a little kid when my mom was beating me and I knew enough about the cross at the Catholic Church, but massive confusion. I, I don't know if I became a Christian then and then was, had a super sensitive conscience my whole life because I really had the Spirit of God within me. Or maybe I became a Christian in boot camp, which is a whole other story. Uh, well, yeah. Do I have time? I don't know if I have time. I'll, I'll, no, no, no. I'm going to ask for forgiveness instead. So I showed up at boot camp the first Sunday. They said, either you can clean or you can go to church. So guess what I did? I went to church. And I was Catholic. And uh, so I went to church. And I thought I'd be in a place to where the Catholic church, and I'm not saying this, I didn't leave Catholic church for theological reasons. I always said I left for boredom. And so I went there, and it was like the same mass, and I was so bored. And then I went to the second service, which was the Protestant service. And it was like they sang and they did stuff. I didn't quite understand it, but I wasn't cleaning, and that took me to lunch, and it was perfect. So I got out of the whole morning of cleaning. And so then the next Sunday came, and they said, well, what service are you going to go to? And I said, all of them. And they said, I'm, that's only the first Sunday you can go to all of them. You have to declare and so that was a big decision for me, and I opted to go to the second service because it seemed to make more sense. It was later, it went longer, it was singing, and it was just a, it was like I'd never, church like I'd never experienced it before. And uh, so I could have become a Christian then, but after boot camp, I thought, well, it's just a Protestant thing. I just, I, if you did, the Protestant church is where it's at. And so then after boot camp, I even tried to go to church, the Protestant church, but you know, the, there are Protestant churches that aren't that great either. So I kind of walked away from God again. Okay, where was I? I'm tired. I'm somewhere. I Oh, the Spirit, I don't know when I became a Christian. But whenever you become a Christian, whenever that is, the Bible tells us that you're sealed with the Spirit, and it's a, a pledge, a, a down payment of sorts, that it's a good faith deposit from God to you, as if you're going to buy a house... And before you make it, you've got to put a certain amount of money down. And you have so long to back out of that money being down. But, but you reach a point where if you back out, you're going to lose that money. And God tells us that while we're in this life, he's giving us a, a pledge, a promise. And that's the spirit of God within us. And I don't think that necessarily the spirit affects people in different ways. For me, I, did, I had to go to Bible college to realize it even happened to me. And uh, I see now over a long history of how the spirit of God has really been working in my life. There are other people who say the Spirit of God changes them right away. Um, but, but, but we're told that we're given the Spirit as a pledge here in 2 Corinthians. And this happens by believing. It's not forced upon you. It's when you believe. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to, to witness to a guy. Craziest, we live in a crazy world these days. Me, who is not an evangelist, I led a guy to the Lord through instant messaging. I was in San Diego. He was in Hawaii. Somebody had connected me with him. And they said he'd like to talk to somebody. And so we were talking, and I realized that in talking with him, he knew all the facts about Christianity. He grew up in the church. He knew that Jesus died, was buried, was risen again. He, he, he could pass a theological academic test if he needed to. 
But then I remember kind of thinking he didn't believe. And I asked him, I said, have you, you have all the facts right, but have you ever like believed, like trusted him, like said this applies to me, that I, I believe that he's writing to me. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for me. I, I want to give my life to you. And two, like two letters, he said, no. And he went silent for about three minutes. And then all of a sudden, he said, done. I just gave my life to Christ. I was like, wow, that was pretty cool. That doesn't happen to me that often. I believe that Jesus died for all of our sins. I believe that Jesus has made the way for you to go to heaven. I, I believe that God has made a way. More, we all talk in terms of very absolutes, like if you die, you're going to go to hell or heaven. But more practically, today, God has given you a way to have a friendship with him, to come into relationship with him. And, you know, Jeremiah and I this morning, we were by our computers, and, and I needed to make some last-minute changes to what I was going to say. And we both have Macs, and we're Mac guys, and, and uh, we opened up Microsoft Word on our Mac, and it brought back a memory of Bible college. There was a guy that we went to Bible college with who was like a career uh, Bible college seminary student. And this time, he was a big old boy, like big old like by rugby player type guy. And he said, this time I'm going to do it. This time I'm making it through seminary. I don't think he's made it yet, but he, he was so funny. He's like, I went and bought a, a, a Mac book pro because I hear these things do everything for you. Okay. And so class is like, we're like 30 seconds from starting the class and he's opened his computer and he's like Mr. Incredible on, on his keyboard. And he's like, where's Microsoft Office on this? I need Microsoft Word. And I was like, brother, you know this is a Mac. Microsoft Word is a, like a PC thing. He's like, no, 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 it has it on there. I'm like, okay, I'm sure it's installed, just be patient. Calm down, doing this 30 seconds before class probably wasn't the wisest part on your move. And then I'm like, here it is. You just got to drag it down here so you can open it. And it goes to the opening process. And he was all happy. And I kind of went back to my seat. The teacher had arrived. And then I hear what I thought was profanity, but I couldn't confirm it from my friend because the Microsoft Word was installed on the program, but it's never been activated. And so there's a fee if you want to activate it, right? And so he's like, it needs my credit card, and I can't. I'm like, of course it does. Have you ever used it? And I'm like, Howard, oh, sorry, I don't know if I was supposed to use his name. <laughs> he won't listen to this. And I would say this to his face. I said, you just gave me a great illustration. See, Jesus has paid for you. He's died for you. He's made a way that you can have a relationship with God. You don't need a credit card. This isn't where I say, can you pull out your credit cards and go to my app, which I don't have. See, if you want to ac activate Microsoft Word, which is installed on a Mac, you're going to need to get out your information. You're going to need to put in your credit card information. They're going to bill you, and then it will become active in your life. And God tells us that Jesus died for your sins according to scriptures. He knew you before you were born. He knew all your circumstances. The message I was going to preach to you today was from Acts 17, 25 through 26, that says that each of us had been placed in our appointed times and locations so that you would be in the sweet spot to reach for God, that you would grope for him.
but you don't need a credit card. What you just need to do, it's as simple as believing. I don't even really believe in a sinner's prayer. I believe that when you hear the gospel and you intellectually in your mind say, I believe or think I believe, I, I buy into this. At that moment, we're told that you're sealed by the Spirit. This passage, which I'm sure I'm out of time, or maybe I'm smelling the barbecue. See, Jeremiah getting nervous over there, like, how long is Gunnar going to speak for? I said I never go short, I always go long, and they're affirming that to me. So, sorry, guys. Spirits here. But he goes on to persuade them, saying that one day we're going to give an account. And so as Christians, all of us will stand before the Lord. And so I'd encourage you that as you're living your life, live your life in a way that you know that one day you're going to give an account. And so if you haven't given your life to Christ, if you haven't believed upon him, I'd encourage you to do whatever you... I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to... But do your homework, research, look at the evidence. It's overwhelming that Christ rose from the dead and that he has a claim in your life, that you would respond by faith. And if you've responded by faith, I would highly encourage you to recognize that one day you're going to stand before him and you're going to give an account for how you managed your life. And I'm not ashamed to say that when I fight with my wife and I do something stupid to the kids, I make a mistake, recognizing that I'm going to face the Lord has made it so much easier for me to go to them and say, honey, I'm sorry. I was really wrong there to go to my kids and say, I'm sorry that I talked to you like that. I was wrong. I'm just, I'm trying to live my life. Will you forgive me? And so I'll close. I know everybody's getting hungry, but I'm on West Coast time, so it's like breakfast for me. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for how you love each one of us so. Lord, we thank you that Jesus came. He died for us, that we might have life. Father, I pray that we would seriously grapple with the, the claims that are in the scriptures. Father, for those of us that don't know Jesus, I pray that you would soften their hearts, Lord, that they might um, come to the place where they have what they need so that they can place their faith in you. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would help us to fully live for you that we recognize, Lord, that we will give an account. We need your help. We need your spirit to lead us, to guide us. We thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness towards us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.